Your name is Mud. Your name is Mud. Perhaps you've heard this phrase before, and everybody basically agrees that the meaning of the phrase, your name is Mud, is meant to communicate that your name, your reputation is is about as low as it can go, right? Uh, Your name, your reputation is about as low as the dirt upon which you walk. Everybody agrees that that's the meaning of the phrase. The disagreement, though, comes in the origin of that phrase, your name is mud. And my favorite origin story of that phrase, your name is mud, it's probably not the true one, but it's the one that preaches best, and so that's the one we're going to talk about. But one of the origin stories goes back to the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. And when John Wilkes Booth assassinated Abraham Lincoln, he escaped, and in trying to escape, he broke his leg. And the story is told that through the night as he fled, he ended up in the home of a man by the name of Dr. Samuel Mudd, a physician, who through the night repaired John Wilkes Booth's broken leg. But in trying to help John Wilkes Booth, Dr. Samuel Mudd was later convicted of conspiracy to assassinate the president. Now, historians later argued that he had no idea who John Wilkes Booth was or what he had just done. And so uh, President Johnson actually in 1869 pardoned Dr. Samuel Mudd. But the damage is done. His name is Mudd and he'll never recover. The same is true for you and for me. Your name and my name is Mudd. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, our name has been cleared, right? But when we take a look at what scripture says about human beings, and that's what we're gonna take a look at together this morning, is we take a look at what the Bible says about humanity. We're left with really these two contrasting pictures, if you will. On the one hand, the Bible is abundantly clear that your name is mud. And in Genesis chapter three, God tells Adam that because of his sin, God tells Adam from dirt you were made and to dirt you will return. Your name is mud. But on the other hand, a biblical anthropology also believes that as human beings, we're created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, there is within us a certain dignity and humanity that we're to love and respect one another because you're created in the image of God. And throughout the Bible and really in day-to-day life, we're constantly balancing between these two positions of what is a human being. We are utterly sinful on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, we are created in the image of God, deserving of love and dignity. So this is the continuation, really, of our sermon series as we work through our doctrinal statement. And now we've been looking at three areas I propose we add to our doctrinal statement. A few weeks ago, we looked at uh, my proposal to add to our doctrinal statement regarding God the Father. Last week, we looked at the spiritual realm. And this week, I'm going to propose to you, we add a statement on basic anthropology. What is a human being and what difference does it really make? You can see we're going to do three things as we've done all along. We're going to look at a text. We're going to look at the theology. 
And we're gonna talk about a takeaway. So uh, if you would please open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter eight. Psalm chapter eight is gonna be our main passage for this morning as we look at a balanced and biblical view of what it is to be a human being. A balanced and biblical view of what it is to be a human being and Psalm chapter eight is our text. Let me read this passage for you and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Psalm chapter eight, a Psalm of David. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm chapter eight presents a very balanced view of these kind of two aspects of humanity that we have to consider, our sinfulness on the one hand, but our majesty on the other hand. Now, interestingly, in Psalm chapter eight, And most importantly, perhaps, what David does at the beginning of Psalm chapter eight is he, before he addresses the majesty of man, he sets this in the context of the greater majesty of man's creator. Let's look at verses one and two. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Again, the first thing I want you to notice here is that in these two opening verses, David, the psalmist, he establishes the greater majesty of God himself. And this is foundational for you and I to understand. David here in this psalm is not presenting the fact that we worship mankind, not at all. What David is laying out here, as he will in just a few verses establish the majesty of mankind, he first reminds us of the greater majesty of God. But notice what he says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. God's majesty, God's greatness is so spectacular that David here explains he can use the weak and the lowly of the world, babies, infants, in order to magnify his greatness. Truly, there is no one who compares to him. His majesty is so great that he can bring strength out of human weakness here in the form of a baby. Again, the most important thing I want you to see in these introductory verses is that 
This is a psalm of praise to God, not a psalm of praise to man. But starting in verse 3, David does highlight the lesser majesty of mankind. Notice what he says in verses 3 and 4. David says, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Notice David begins with this observation. He begins with this observation of all of creation and he's overwhelmed at the thought of the majesty of all of the creation. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, when I consider, Lord, everything you have created, what is a human being that you would give us even a little bit of attention? I'm sure you've had a similar experience. Maybe you've gone to the mountains or you've gone to the beach. Maybe you've looked at night at the night sky and all the stars. And perhaps you've had the same thought that David has had. You're overwhelmed at the magnitude and the majesty of the creation. And more than that, you're overwhelmed at the magnitude and the majesty of the creator. And you've thought to yourself, God, I'm such a small piece of this puzzle. I feel so insignificant compared to you, but also compared to all that you have created. How can God be mindful of us when we're so small? And yet notice what he says in verse five, yet, here's the contrast. Yet God, you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. David considers the majesty of the creator as he considers the magnitude of the creation. He is now in verse five, coming to the realization that in light of all of that, it's truly amazing that God himself, the creator of the universe, would make us just a little lower than God. By the way, depending on your translation, it may say you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or you've made him a little lower than the angels. The NASB here says you made him a little lower than God. The Hebrew word is Elohim. And that word Elohim, the Hebrew word, has been translated in a number of ways. It's often used to describe God. It's other times used to describe heavenly beings. And so depending on the uh, translation you have, it may be a little different. Uh, But the point David is here making is that we're insignificant to our creator. As David considers the heavens and all of God's creation, it's amazing that he's taken any thought of us at all. And yet it's even more amazing that he's placed us under himself. That one day human beings will rule over the world God has created. We're reminded yet again of the truth that mankind truly is the pinnacle of all of God's creation. Augustine once said, men travel and marvel at mountain heights, at great waves of the sea, at long courses of rivers, the vastness of the ocean, the circular movement of the stars, but they pass by themselves without wonder. 
And when we really take a step back, like David hears in, in this psalm, and we consider the fact that from dirt we were created, and yet God has placed us in this position directly under Himself, it's amazing. There are a couple other observations I want you to see here in these verses. Uh, Again, David says there in verse 5, you have made him a little lower than God. You've made him a little lower than God. Once again, David is reminding us of our position. We are not at God's level. We're not above him. We are definitely below him, right? This is a psalm of praise to God, not a psalm of praise to ourselves. The second thing David says here, though, is although we're lower than God, the second part of verse 5 says, Yet God has crowned him with glory and majesty. God has crowned mankind with glory and majesty. I think Psalm 8 points back to Genesis chapter 1, especially, the creation of mankind. Going back to this idea that we're created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, we're created, as David says here, with glory and honor or glory and majesty. It's an incredible thing to be made in the image of God. And then finally, David reminds us in verses six through eight, as people who are created in the image of God, we're lower than God, and yet we're crowned with glory and majesty. And then finally, we're created with a purpose. We're created with the purpose to rule over the rest of God's creation. Notice verse six, he says, you make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So mankind was created in the image of God. Mankind was created with glory and majesty, glory and splendor, and mankind was created with purpose to rule over the rest of God's creation. Here Psalm 8 is a reminder of just how great it is to be human. But then David reminds us in the last verse, again, putting us in our proper place, verse nine, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David ends where he began the psalm, praising God for his work, not praising humanity. And so throughout Psalm chapter eight, you see again this back and forth this reminder of our proper place as human beings under God, under his authority, less majestic than he is, and yet at the same time we are the pinnacle of his creation. That every human being who has ever lived is created in the image of God, is to be treated therefore with dignity and love. It's a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful reminder of what it is to be human. I think this is a good reminder for us because as I look at our world today, I think we fail to remember both of those ideas, right? Some people tend to emphasize the sinfulness of mankind, but ignore the dignity of mankind. And if we only focus on the sinfulness of mankind, then it's very easy to discard, to ignore, to overlook people On the other hand, if we overemphasize the dignity of mankind and ignore the sinfulness of mankind, then it's easy to idolize 
to worship people. But both really are perversions of God's view of humanity. God's view of humanity holds both intention. We're created with dignity, and yet we've also marred the very image of God in whom we're created. We see both aspects. Your name is mud, and yet you're created in the image of God. So as we take a look at number two on your outline, let's talk about a theology of mankind. As we consider a theology of mankind and and who man is, what man is, again, we need to hold in tension and hold in balance both of these views. A biblical anthropology holds in balance both the fallen condition of man as well as the majestic position of man. It holds in balance, it holds in tension both the fallen condition of mankind as well as the majestic position of mankind in light of the rest of God's creation. A few weeks ago, uh, we went over our doctrinal statement on the sinfulness of mankind. But to remind you of what we saw then, let me read for you what our doctrinal statement or what I propose our doctrinal statement says about the sinfulness of mankind. Again, we talked about this weeks ago. But I would propose we update our statement of faith to say we believe that in Adam's sin, all of humanity fell into sin, inherited a sinful nature, became alienated from God, and is totally unable to regain its former position. We believe that all people are separated from God because of sin and are therefore deserving of God's eternal punishment. We believe that God's intervention is our only hope for salvation. This is that one side of this tension. We absolutely affirm the utter sinfulness of all human beings. But now I'd invite you to flip over to the back side of your outline and let me present to you what I think we should add about the purpose and dignity of human beings. So we believe that all people are created in the image of God in order to glorify him, enjoy his fellowship, represent him, and live in fellowship with one another and rule over the earth. We believe that all people, although marred by sin, are to be treated with love and dignity. We believe that Jesus is the perfect image of God and we should therefore reflect his image in how we live. We believe that at the resurrection, we will be made like him in glory. Again, I think we need both statements in our statement of faith. To discuss the reality of the sinfulness of mankind, but also to discuss the reality of the dignity and purpose of mankind. And it is a tension. My son Judah who I pick on all the time from the pulpit. His name is Mud. Um, My son Judah is trying to learn how to swim. And he's in this really awkward and dangerous phase as a kid learning how to swim, where in his mind, he thinks he can swim. He thinks he can swim like Michael Phelps. But in reality, the truth is, he can swim for a few seconds, and then he will sink like a stone. And so Han and I have the challenge as parents of trying to balance both of these truths, right? 
to instill in him a little confidence that yes, indeed, Judah, you can swim, you can learn to do this, while at the same time reminding him that if we leave you to your own, you are going to die, all right? Um, and it's the same with all of us. We all need to be reminded of both of those messages that left to our own, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is no hope for us. And at the same time, we're created in the image of God. We're the pinnacle of his creation. That God loves us and he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Both of these truths have to be held in tension and in balance with one another. And that's what I want to talk about as we look at number three on your outline, the takeaway. What difference does this make? What impact does this really have in the way that we live? Like I said earlier, I think our culture tends to either elevate and worship people or it tends to dehumanize people. But as we take a look at all of the biblical evidence of anthropology, I think we're reminded that man was not created to be worshiped, but neither was man created to be maligned by one another. And we need both of these realities. I'm convicted by the book of James, constantly convicted by the book of James, but there's a verse in James that says, uh, with, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. That we praise our God, the one who created us, and yet we curse one another and whose image one another is made. And James says it ought not to be this way. But it is, isn't it? It's a convicting reality in all of our lives that we tend to not see the dignity and the humanity in people who maybe don't look like I do, walk like I do, talk like I do, vote like I do. We tend to fall into the ways of the world to judge one another. And let me be clear, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as right and wrong, as truth and falsehood. I'm not saying we can't speak our convictions. Absolutely we can't. But we also need to treat people, even people who disagree with us, with the basic love and dignity that is theirs because they too are created in the image of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm growing weary of living in a world where it seems like that's impossible. Where you open the news, uh, you turn to your favorite news station, and there's so much just name-calling and hostility. It seems like we've lost, even as believers, we've lost the ability to treat one another with basic kindness, even when we disagree. Francis Schaeffer years ago said that cultures can be judged in many ways, but eventually, Every nation in every age must be judged by this test. How did it treat people? How did it treat people? See, Psalm chapter 8, a biblical and balanced view of anthropology, a study on the purpose and dig dignity and also sinfulness of mankind. What it ultimately does for us is just like it did David here in Psalm chapter eight. It reminds us of our sinfulness, 
but also our majesty. It ultimately points us to worship the one who created us, the one in whose image we are made. Ultimately, what Psalm chapter eight, what a study of anthropology does is it points us to the perfect image bearer of God. It points us to Jesus because only him, only he, truly does this perfectly. And listen, I want to extend to you an invitation. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted in him, if what I'm saying here this morning doesn't really make sense to you, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation where you are to consider what the Bible says about Jesus. The painful reality is all of us indeed have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are deserving of God's wrath because all of us are sinners. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son that he laid down his life so that you can live. He laid down his life. He died in your place for the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of my sins. And he's resurrected to new life to bring about a new life in you. And if you have questions about this, if you wanna know more about this, I'd love to talk with you. I know any of our elders would as well. Uh, But right where you are, you can simply put your faith and put your trust in him. The truth is your name is mud. You can't swim like Michael Phelps. But at the same time, God loves you. You're created in his image. You're meant to represent him. So let's be the people he created us to be. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we confess uh, that we don't get this right. I confess that I tend to err on one side or the other. Uh, God, it's so easy to sometimes overlook the sin in my own life, the sin of other people's lives. On the other hand, it's so easy to at times to minimize the dignity and the humanity of other people. God, help us to find this balance. Help us to, like Jesus, know when to call a spade a spade, to call out sin when we see it, and yet to do so with tenderness and compassion, and love. Father, help us to be more like him. Help us, as he did, to love you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and help us to love our neighbor as ourself. God, I ask this for myself and for each one here, and I ask in Jesus' name, amen.